It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Tumbling Dice. This is Ali, and today is episode nine. And as you may have noticed, the intro music is a bit different from the normal Tumbling Dice song by the Rolling Stones because we have a special guest. And I would like to welcome Tim Lawrence. Hi, Tim. Hi, Ali. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for the invite. So today's guest is a man who wears many hats. Tim is an author of several music and dance-oriented books, and we'll get into that a bit later. He's a professor of cultural studies at the University of East London, the co-founder of Lucky Cloud Sound System, which is a descendant of the Loft Parties from David Manusco, and he's a co-founder of All Our Friends, an invite-only audiophile party in London. So, Tim, welcome again. Thank you so much for being here. And would you be able to give a brief intro about yourself as well? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> uh, I mean, you've done it for me, but um, yeah, I don't know. What can I say? Um, I was a journalist. Uh, I wasn't doing too well in life. Uh, my parents had both died and I found solace on a dance floor, a sense of hope. And uh, that was in London in the early 1990s. And um, I decided I wanted to go to New York to listen, to be closer to the music. I thought the best music was coming out of New York City at that particular point. And I thought I'd do a doctorate in English literature um, while I was going along uh, over to New York to give me something more focused to do. I wasn't enjoying journalism too much at the time either. Uh, I just wanted to meditate on the themes of life and death, really. And that sort of quickly led me to um, working with a professor who's, you know, who's very outward facing and suggested that in addition to my doctorate, I write a quick music about dance music. And I was really into house at the time. Um, I was a, a house head. Um, <laughs> and early research into, for that book uh, soon led me back to this guy, David Mancuso, um, who I hadn't really heard of at the time. Um, but it, you know, I was interested in meeting him and I had been told that he was around um, in New York City somewhere at the beginning of this culture, party culture, dance culture. Uh, and I met David Mancuso. Uh, we did this three-hour interview. I barely understood a word that he said or any of the references. And I thought I was pretty knowledgeable about uh, dance music culture. Um, so that was interesting to me coming from a kind of journalistic background. There was a kind of an idea there, a story, if you like. Um, and I found David utterly compelling, um, you know, soon established um, that he was a central figure um, to the evolution of DJ culture and party culture and all the things that followed in, in New York City. Um, and just um, so many things have followed from that moment, really, that one interview. Um, three books now on, on this period of, of, of New York City, party, music and art culture in the 1970s and early 1980s. Uh, in 2003, my first book, um, which was titled Love Saves the Day after David's first uh uh, mythologically first love party, we could say, in February 1970. Uh, as that book was going into production, David turned around to me and said, would I like to start uh, working with him and uh, Colleen Murphy um, putting on loft-style parties in London? 
um, and I agreed to do that. And that's that was those those parties are still running. Uh, a couple of years ago, decided to start another related party of uh, my own, as you as you mentioned, all our friends. Uh, the parties are quite distinctive in many ways. They're very much not a club. There's a very high emphasis on community, on friendliness, on welcoming. The music is very broad ranging. Uh, following all of this follows the loft, by the way, the David's party. Um, can, you can really hear any kind of music being played. Uh, the parties last for at least seven or eight hours. Um, there's people we put on food and make sure everyone feels comfortable. It's like going to someone's birthday party in a way, a house An party. extended <laughs> birthday party. There's a, and there's a really high emphasis is placed on on the sound on the sound equipment and using what uh, some people refer to as audiophile sound. It just means it, the idea is really that you close your eyes and you think that the band or the musicians are in the room with you. Uh, the, the sound reproduction is that good, and this is all for a purpose. It's not some sort of snobbery, if you like. It's the idea is the the cleaner and purer and warmer and more realistic the sound, the more energy the dancers will get from that sound. Um, so that feeds into a, a, a more ecstatic party, really. And the idea really is that um, these parties provide people with an alternative place for being and creating the kind of world that they would like to be in. It's not really so much an escape from reality, if you like, as constructing a new reality or an alternative reality. And this is what, how they were conceived by David back in February 1970. It was a time of, of uh, social and cultural transformation. And there was an idea to try and do this on the dance floor. So I've become very involved in the culture as well as writing about it, also organising it. Um, and also now have a little record label that kind of releases uh, some of the rarer records that are uh, discussed in the books that I've written. And yeah, I have a day job at the University of East London. Um, and I'm struggling with COVID times in some ways like everyone else, though yeah. also recognise it's very much a class pandemic. Mm -hmm. The working class people are struggling uh, a whole lot more than middle class people, even if middle class people are having their own struggles. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, a lot to dig in there. And it's really interesting thinking that David Mancuso was this figure with one encounter who really transformed, I'd say, the trajectory of... Mm your life in a lot of ways with music and with the future books. And mm. we'll touch upon a lot of that later and the loft parties as well. But mm. maybe just a, a core question that I think is probably quite difficult to answer, but it's at the core of it. Why, why dance? Why is it that the dance floor or dancing resonates with you so much? And why is it so important? not only in your life personally, but culturally, and especially in creating this community aspect that you're looking for with your parties and, yeah, I would say in general. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a really good question. I mean, it's this, this really complex, and I don't usually get asked this, so it's a nice question, mm -hmm. and it goes to the core of it already, and I could probably ramble for a while on, on this, So, but I'll throw out a few thoughts. Um, one is there's just a physical pleasure of, of moving one's body and listening to music and, and joining those two things up. Um, I think it's a very interesting form of pleasure and not everyone seems to experience it in the same way. But, you know, I like all sorts of culture. Um, I like going to cinema. I like art galleries and all the rest of it. But there's something about listening to music and particularly dancing about music that kind of just seems to 
be more emotive, more powerful. And I do think it's to do with music and sound and the, um, the difference between sound waves and uh, light waves. Sound waves enter our bodies. They really affect us. You know, they, 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 they make us move. Uh, they make us respond in a way that visual culture just doesn't. We go to an art gallery, we go to the cinema, we're usually quite passive and we're behaving quite a constrained way but on a, on you know a, a, when we're listening to music um you know or especially if we're going to a console going out dancing then we're really our bodies are really moving in a way that doesn't happen in most other cultures and i just i really like that uh it might be because i'm a slightly heady person um i like thinking and you know, my brain works quite quite a lot uh, and maybe does overtime that the idea of like letting go of that side of things and entering into a kind of more unconscious more instinctive more responsive state is also uh, really appealing to me can you hear me? Yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah. Quite sure. No, uh, no. Again. <laughs> no it, um, I'm just, I'm really so, absorbing your uh, answer because I, yeah, yeah. Goosebumps. No, I just like, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I was, and then there's the kind of a sense of being, uh, a sense of being an outsider, I think, um, which is not entirely straightforward story because I'm white and middle class and male. But I didn't grow up in a family that had much money. Uh, my dad had come out of Nazi Germany on the kinder transport, these trains that were put on by the Allies to get Jewish kids out of Germany before the war started. Um, so he came over as a 15-year-old German kid um, and became a tailor and then through studies became, went to studied English and studied English literature and even became an English teacher, which I, th I found a really compelling story and um, was one of the reasons why when I decided to give up journalism and go to live in New York City, I wanted to do a doctorate in English literature. It's partly a way of connecting with my, my dad and also my mum, who are no longer around. Um, but I grew up in the, my dad got his first job in, in sort of Reading, in the sort of suburbs, really, to a certain, outside of Reading, really, sort of west of London. And I was the only Jewish kid in my school. There were no black kids, no Asian kids. Uh, it was white. It was largely middle class, though there were some kids from the local estate. But I definitely felt, um, I would say, a little bit different. And it wasn't that I didn't have friends or like people, but I had a sense of being some, a little bit of an outsider, not always quite fitting in. Sometimes this came from, you know, a lot of bit of random anti-Semitism, sometimes teachers being a bit, you know, a bit problematic in their behaviour to me, maybe. And I did have this very powerful sense that when I went to London and then also when I went to New York, but also through dance culture in particular, that this was a place for outsiders to gather, really. It was a place for people who didn't quite fit in, maybe to find a new form of community. Um, there was this thing definitely happening in, in the late 80s and early 1990s where the dance, and this goes back at least to the loft, uh, I would say, where the dance floor really operated as a place for people who felt like they might not quite fit in uh, and wanted to form all, you know, find alternative forms of community uh, to become part of, um, you know, for women, for people of colour, uh, other, other, you know, minority groups, queers, um, the dance floor has, has long been an important uh, space for congregation historically. And it's not something that I was rationally felt through. Uh, it just was something that happened to me. I just felt comfortable in these spaces. I've, I've never felt more comfortable, really. 
um, living in a city than when I went to live in New York City. Uh, although the city's quite changed now from when I first went there, and when I first went there, it was quite changed from the 1970s. It still is a place where you have a heavy earth. Uh, there's a thick sense of like people coming from all over the world, migrants from all over the world, and sort of you know making a stand in New York and, and making it work. Again, it's a changed city. It's become like London in many respects, a city for the rich. So this comes with all sorts of problems, especially for people from poorer backgrounds. But there was a sensibility of, of um, feeling at home in these in these places where people from all different backgrounds could congregate, and it's just something I I found I thrived in. I didn't um, I, I did end up growing, yeah. So just I'll leave it at that. Um, and then the other thing is just sort of sheer life circumstances. My parents had died. Um, I was uh, quite depressed, probably without really knowing it. Um, I was looking for something. I was in journal. I was in political journalism, but I was pretty fed up with political journalism because it just seemed like there was like a, you know, the Conservative Party would be in power forever. It seemed no matter what what corruption or what whatever, however, but the however their bad you know policies that weren't working were exposed it just felt that was never going to change um and a friend from uh, the labor party that i was kind of a little bit involved with i'd been quite involved with the university politics a friend just took me to a rave and um you know gave me something that was it was supposed to be ecstasy i'm not sure that it was <laughs> something it may have been laced with something because it was, i had a fairly hallucinogenic experience and it was uh, without getting into the details it was really moving and it involved my parents um and it felt kind of, yeah, very profound. And it somehow happened in this dance space, this sort of darkened space. And uh, I was felt quite actually a little bit isolated, but I could sense a collectivity as well. And then very short while later, this friend took me to this place called the Gardening Club, this kind of somewhat underground basement uh, um, venue in Covent Garden, back when Covent Garden had some sort of culture going on in it. Um, and I just loved, I just felt at home there. It was one of these things that just, it happens to people in different ways and different walks of life in different places. But you, you find you go to, you go to a situation and something clicks and it's like you've arrived and, you know, you could, wouldn't have forecast it, but once you're there, you understand it. And that's what happened to me. It was kind of, it was intimate it was warm it was friendly the music had this i mean so i don't even listen to so much of this music now but it was an early new york early 90s new york house was being played and it just seemed to contain everything you could want musically it was you know highly rhythmic propulsive futuristic sounding you know it was very early house music doesn't so much sound like it now but it sounded very conceptual uh, very progressive. There was no straightforward beginning, middle, and end. Uh, you know, sampling was still new culture, so it just sounded like music was coming from. You didn't know where the hell, where mixing was new to me. So it's like, where did a record begin? Where did a record end? What happened when two records played simultaneously? It felt like a real art form back then. Now, to me, it, I don't know, it doesn't quite work in the same way, but I'm just getting old, I suppose. Or else the culture is getting a bit old and, and, you know, seeks ways of renewing itself always. But back then it felt... But the other thing about New York House was it had elements of dub, of soul, of disco, uh, and of jazz, um, and certainly Latin and African elements. And these were very clearly foregrounded in the music. And all of these sounds could be heard in the in this music. And it just felt like it was a universal sound to me that it could, that this, this, form, this formula, if you want, this matrix, I suppose is a better word of house music, could contain everything. And uh, I just felt it was very democratic, very uplifting. It made me, it made, I was at a, a low point and it made me feel okay. 
um, basically. It kind of gave me that sense of, I felt I had a, a sense, although it was very transient, I felt like it was a community. I think these party communities are generally quite interesting, especially in COVID times. We've had time to reflect on how they work because they're not like regular friendships, but they still are very powerful, these communities. Uh, and it gave me a sense of hope. Um, and yeah, so that was really, so dancing does some of these things for me, I'd say. Um, and then it's gone on to, you know, it goes from losing oneself on the dance floor and having an incredible sort of emotional experience or physical experience um, to then becoming someone who organizes and also and also DJs. And each each step of the way, you know, working with David Mancuso, who is this, was this, I mean, he passed away in, uh, at the end of 2016, but he he's devoted, you know, pretty much 46 years of his life to when you know more or less every week for 46 years putting on a party and making sure that party was as good a party as it possibly could be like working tirelessly to improve the sound get things ready uh listen to music uh decorate the room prepare food whatever it was it was it was a life obsession and working with david for example just in not just only interviewing him for these these books but in particular the first book but also the third one and a little bit of the second one uh but just working with david it was just like wow i'd kind of i'd learned so much interviewing him and then i learned a whole load of things by working alongside him and being, being a friend but also a collaborator a partner if you like so and then you know what's happened since so there's just there's such a, it's a rich culture i suppose it hasn't you know i'm now 53 um you know people might say i should, really should be doing other spending more time in the garden or whatever and i quite i don't mind gardening but uh, yeah there's something about this culture that's very compelling and you know it's interesting i have i brought i was like i like to think of myself as being as many of us do, has been kind of broad-minded with the amount of types of music we'd listen to. What's become so interesting to me is almost everything fits into this lost-style party because it's an eight-hour, nine-hour musical journey and it begins very calmly and it begins, it ends with ecstasy. And in the middle, lots of different things can happen. Um, so there's really, it's, 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 a, it's also, I'm talking about, dance music or part we're talking about dance music or party music but that to me there's something about like i'm not sure everything seems to fit in really everything feels interconnected um so yeah so it doesn't always i haven't got tired of it yet but there are definitely there have been little moments where i've kind of felt like oh i'm getting a bit not not inspired by certain dance floors or certain sounds and you know but that's just that's also either then it's you know then it's just a matter of just trying to trying to look for ways, you know, ask ask what, ask oneself what's becoming boring and how can one uh, find a different way to explore things because, you know, the world is rich and uh, so far I've managed to do that. Yeah. Well, that's really beautiful. I, uh, I think you articulated what a lot of people who also have this same um, feeling, I guess, for dancing and the dance floor and a convergence of mm. people and this spiritual element in a way when you think of going to a nightclub once a weekend maybe you're there on a sunday to kind of parallel it even more so religiously i think it it does have this this solace and feeling that people don't get in their normal life so 
Thank you very much Lately. for that. Yeah. But also, yeah. you know, one of the first important disc, the first, the first major discotheque in New York City, as far as I, you know, as I'm concerned, this book that I've written uh, on the 70s was called the Sanctuary, and actually it was located in a in a church that was no longer used as a church, and the DJ booth was in the altar. Um, <laughs> so, and you know, Francis Grasso, the DJ, you know, was the priest basically. He was a secular priest, but the the experience was a spiritual. Um, transcendent, uh, cathartic experience. Um, so yeah, all these things, you know, there's a direct kind of parallel can be seen in a sense there. Um, and then, you know, just to just pull something out of the air, David Mancuso, um, you know, grew up in, in a children's home after a couple of days, you know, when he was a, just a few days old, his mum took him to this children's home and he was brought up by a sister called Sister Alicia. Um, and there was a religious element there. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not personally, I don't, I'm Jewish, but I don't consider myself to be religious, though I will observe some festivals for cultural, historical reasons. Uh, but I don't have a straightforward belief in higher powers, though I like to think of, you know, myself as being increasingly conscious of, you know, spiritual dimensions of things humans don't understand, of uh, the... the multi-layered nature of the universe of the and i could also say you know the underlying importance of you know without wishing to sound cheesy universal love um and david these were very important ideas for david and um and you know his first party was was called love saves the day which was a valentine's day party it was held on february uh, 14th of february 1970 um, and, you know, the, you know, the Love Saves the Day kind of was about universal love. It was also uh, an acid party. So Love Saves the Day referenced LSD, acid, love, L, saves, mm -hmm. S, the day, D. Um, but there was a lot of connections between, you know, these, this, this and that experience and David growing up in uh, growing up in this children's home with this, 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 this nun um who and again it was there was uh it was it, it was in this place where day you know david was his his up his formative social experience was to was to be in this children's home and looked after by someone who wasn't his biological mother and this person this person looked after any kids who came into her care and she showed them undying love uh, unconditional love and the nature of david's family was uh, extended and transient, but it was very important. So it wasn't like a regular family situation. He grew up in a normative family situation, if you like, you know, mum, dad, and however many kids. But it was like const kids constantly coming and going. But they were they were deeply bonded together in great need, looked after by a nun who happened to go out every week to buy James Brown records at the local record store in order to play these kids the music they wanted to, that would make them dance and to decorate the room with balloons. Um, so this is there's a sort of there's a sense of like there's something spiritual going on here with David's very upbringing that he then went on to repeat in his life. I mean, he became the the bearded sister Alicia. Effectively, yeah. he took on that role of giving his his home that he would open for a party every Saturday night and anyone who wanted could come as long as they kind of got on the invite list, which was just a matter of asking or being invited or being recommended by a friend. But these, what, the people who congregated were people who also generally congregated. They generally hadn't, hadn't had particularly straightforward childhoods or family lives. Many of these people were 
for example, uh, black and queer or Latin and queer, and you know maybe weren't able, didn't feel able to come out in in their homes, and so were looking for a, an, another home really where they could feel at home and express themselves. And this is this is so David played the role for these people that the nun played for him really. And it's indeed it's unconditional love. It's like you just welcome people, and and take care take care of them, and give them the freedom to be themselves and explore who they want to be. And I think that's why uh, this is such a powerful culture for so many people. The culture kind of goes wrong when it becomes something else. And this was David. This was I know I'm talking quite abstractly about David and the Mancuso and this loft party, um, but it, it stands as something as an alternative route into party culture. And I, I'm, I don't have anything against, say, let's say, club culture per se. But there is a sometimes, and you know, David might express this at times in interviews or this was his experience is that sometimes with clubs you kind of feel like the point is to make money or, or not to care for people. You know, the music can be played too loudly or the place just is a bit unpleasant or the way you're the way you're handled at the door is unpleasant and invasive because they're searching you and it's not like welcoming someone. Um, and sometimes people find, so there's, there's a dichotomy in the culture as well. I think at its heart, this is what people coming together from different, from wherever, from, it doesn't have to be from minority backgrounds. It's, it, this is, there's another, you know, another argument I like, so I'm going on a bit here, but one of the things about cities, uh, if we think about it, can you know again conceptually a little bit, is that cities are pretty interesting places. Um, they're these you know constantly these, concentra- these intensely uh, spaces of intense concentration for human beings, and most people we come into contact during the day are we don't know who they are. They're strangers, um, and we have to trust them that they're not going to rob us. They're not going to. Um, um, stab us or shoot us or yell at us for no good reason. And cities can only function if we basically trust strangers. And, and it's interesting that party spaces are one of the places where we can best learn to trust strangers, um, you know, sh- show goodwill and kindness and courtesy and care. Um, at an early rave, you know, I went to a few of them before I got involved with the with the party culture, I, you know, I'd taken a bit of MDMA and I was, I don't know, it was, I never did that well on MDMA particularly. Um, it was fine. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it wasn't so good. Uh, I never felt a risk from it particularly, but at one point I certainly definitely wanted to sit down a little bit and it was just really moving to have people come up to me and check I was all right and did I want a bit of water and, there was a sense there, and this was also the late, and this, and this is kind of way before your time probably, but the late 80s and early 90s, it was like we'd come through Thatcherism. And Thatcher had said there's no such thing as society, and it was about competition and the individual and the, the families looking after themselves before they looked after others, and it was, quite a sel- it, was, it was quite a selfish decade, really. And so dance culture rose up in part to, as a as a, as a as a um, challenge to this, as I'd say, that we can operate socially and with care for each other and as a community and as a society. So I think, you know, dance spaces play this role as well. Uh, But sometimes it gets undermined if the person running the space is just basically trying to make a quick buck. Um, And then there's wider social and cultural conditions that have also made it harder for people to operate party spaces because, you know, 
cost of property, the restrictions placed on spaces through local councils and fear mongering, some, some of it coming from the gentrification process. This is all makes makes the culture, makes it harder for the culture to survive in, in you know, today, to, you know, in, in cities today, never mind the problems of the pandemic, which were obviously, you know, catastrophic for party culture. Yeah, and I was thinking and kind of what you were saying in terms of this difference between party culture and club culture and mm. the intimate environment that David put together. Do you mm. think because something I struggle with now is going to clubs, it, it feels like it's very much big business techno. It's, you know, mm. the DJs who are doing well on social media, mm. the DJs who are getting a lot of streams on Boiler Room. It's people mm -hmm. who are filming their experiences rather than just being there mm -hmm. physically and putting their phone away for the evening. Do you yeah. think we'll get to a point where we pivot back or is this really something that will continue? Because I, I, the way you describe the loft parties, I mean, I'm longing for this kind of a environment. You're not, where are you, where are you based again? Amsterdam. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, maybe by the end of the, when the pandemic is over, you can pop over to London. I mean, there should be lots going on in Amsterdam, but I guess it's, probably quite a techno driven scene there is it it's a mix i would say it's it's definitely a mix but also in terms of what you were saying with the this radical inclusion of his parties where mm -hmm. anyone could feel mm. equal and welcome here you still get a sense that there when you go to a house or a techno party we don't it isn't there and i'm just wondering what is it that caused the shift as well what mm. caused the shift in making especially when you think of the roots of house music, of techno music, mm -hmm. they're oriented so mm. much more in this very welcoming, inclusive, almost rebellious mm. and, mm, and how they were created. But now it's become, well, I would say the opposite in a lot of ways. Mm. Well, it's, you know, it's very hard to generalize and yeah. I'm loath to kind of be overly critical to put down different forms of expression. You know, the world is pluralist, you know, the world is diverse. It's, that's part of the beauty of life and dance cultures like that. I don't think, it's not like when David got going, there was just one way of doing it. And now 50 years on, there's another way of doing it. Um, I'd say what's going on now is it's, it's complicated and it's been interesting for me to see pre the pandemic you know, from 2003 onwards has really been my experience. But I think that that's, you know, it's not a bad, 2003 isn't a bad place to begin because when David came to London for the first time, there wasn't anything going on like that. And people thought, a bunch of people thought what we were doing was very strange. And we came in, we got some criticism as well. And um, yeah, people, some people were challenged by it. Um, but gradually, and also when I wrote the first book and sort of said, look, this story begins not with, with house music and electronic music to a certain extent and figures like Larry Levan and Frankie Knuckles in particular, but actually, I, so instead of beginning in the mid-1980s, I think this, this history really begins in 1970 with this guy, David Mancuso, who brought together many existing streams, by the way. It's not like he, he didn't so much invent the wheel as just like, you know, find a way to kind of bring together all these really interesting cultural phenomenon that were already existing in society and um, shape that into this this intimate private party with a beautiful sound system and all-night dancing that didn't sell alcohol so that it could avoid the cabaret licensing laws and stay open as long as he liked. And it was the first place to reintroduce the mirror ball. And, you know, there were all these things were going on. There was, and everything, okay, everything was about 
how do you maximize the energy and the pleasure on the dance floor? Everything went through that that kind of equation, if you like, and and had to pass through that equation in order to exist. Um, and I think that's that's very interesting, you know. And I've had some. I mean, I could talk about this for extremely long times, but I'll try and be brief and say that, you know, when I one, in one of the various interviews I did with David, um, it was a, it was kind of a jokey interview because I'd interviewed him many times, but I was asked to do something for a Berlin-based magazine that, in the end, never even got published. It was kind of a new idea, and um, the advertising didn't come through. But I conducted this interview with David, and in the interview. Um, one one of the things I asked him was, so David, what do you do when you prepare for a party? Um, and um, I mean, it would be fun if we could play a game now, but I guess we don't have time for that. And I could ask you, what do you think his answer were? But anyway, his answer was, first, first thing um, is, sorry, I'm pausing to think of the best way to express this. First thing is you want to have a group of friends who would like to dance with each other. If you don't have that, don't bother. There's not, nowhere to go with this. It's not about a concept, an idea, a market, a way to make money, you know, and, and a, uh, what would you say, a projection of a fantasy or what you want. You know, let's say, you know, I could uh, confess to having this, you know, learning to beat mix in my room when I was living in New York City and got some turntables and a mixer and imagining myself kind of doing this in front of a thousand people because I'd been going to body and soul at the time, which was where, you know, there's a lot of people going and going crazy and you sort of, you fantasize. That's not where you start with that fantasy. You start with friends who want to dance with each other. Next, you find a space. That space needs to be home, home, uh, home, have a home-like quality. It doesn't have to resemble a home. Um, David sort of said the test for it was, would you be prepared to sleep there that night uh -huh. if you had nowhere else to go and feel comfortable? So it might have, you know, generally you want it also, that place needs to be acoustically sound. So often this means wooden floors. A lot of clubs these days have concrete floors. Concrete floors are terrible acoustically and they are very bad for your back and your legs and your muscles and they tire you out quickly. Um, so you, you, the space is very important. It's got it's got to be good acoustically. Again, you can have you could spend you could have the best possible sound system. You could spend millions on a sound system. If the acoustics in the room are bad, the sound will be rubbish. Simple as that. You can have a great acoustic room and a very cheap sound system, and it can sound awesome. I've got a little external speaker that uh, costs 120 quid, and if it's in a good acoustic space, it can sound really impressive. Um, so you've got to have good acoustics. It should be comfortable. Ideally, you want wooden floors, um, and you just feel well comfortable. Yeah, it's home-like. Uh, you know, David, it was actually where he lived. So there'll be sofas and, you know, he'd decorate with balloons to make people feel comfortable, like you're entering into a children's party. It can sound like a bit naff, I suppose. People, some people want to think of party culture as like really edgy and underground and, you know, cutting edge and balloons don't quite cut, you know, don't have quite the same image <laughs> of the birthday party. But, you know, there's an import, it's, you know, the idea of letting ourselves go of a certain innocence, of something that's colourful, that's cheap, welcoming you know that that can i suppose you know that's can play its own role anyway so you get friends who come together your friends who want to dance together good space next you put together a system and generally you know it's nice to have all this fancy equipment 
reproduce sound perfectly because that will provide even more musical energy, life energy, David referred to it as, for the dancers. But you just want to get a warm stereo. You don't, you, you, the approach would be to recreate the sound of the music rather than to distort it. So David wasn't into like massive bass and everything, and he wasn't into like, I mean, he innovated actually massive bass and, and massive treble. He was the first person to introduce what I referred to, what I referred to then as tweeter arrays and bass reinforcements. It was his idea. Um, and it caught on in club sound, party sound, discotheque sound, whatever you want to call it. And then a few years later, he rejected it all. And he said, no, actually, that's just like interfering with the music. And there's a problem when you interfere with the music because you don't know where to stop, really. And it becomes about your ego rather than the music. Uh, I should probably throw in here, it's like I found David's ideas continually fascinating. And I agree with a lot of it, but it, I don't sort of, it's not like a religious doctrine. I mean, I think that there's a certain level of complexity here as well. And um, David became very purist to the point where he got rid of his mixer because he thought that it was denigrating or reducing the quality of the sound signal by making it pass through too many electronic stages. And uh, if you got rid of the mixer, you would the, the number of sound stages that the music had to pass through from the needle to your ear would be fewer. Therefore, the, the, the sound would be would be purer and your experience of the music would be would be greater. So he got rid of his mixer. So he was radical and I always appreciated the radicalism and it's like, wow. You know, and he held on to this stuff for fifty years pretty much. It's no, that's that's a long running party. And it's an extraordinary level of conviction to kind of maintain this stuff. So look, I when I we're all our friends, we use a mixer. I just personally like to be able to hear the incoming record. Um, because for me it's a feel thing and I also don't have an amazing sonic memory either so i want to be able to hear the record i'm bringing in and if it somehow is not quite feeling right i'll you know i'll change those records a, a good few times sometimes until and maybe that's a weakness but you know I, it's something i like to ever do uh, i don't really bother with beat mixing anymore i, I find it it's not really it doesn't serve a purpose for me straightforwardly but i don't mind it sometimes i quite like it mm. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm diverging. The point is to get a nice stereo and um, and to try for it to be musical, I suppose. Um, and it's interesting what happens when you do that. Initially, it feels like something's a bit wrong. Uh, we David would, uh, would wouldn't play music above 100 dB. Most club systems are playing at 100, at least 120 dB. But at that level, you can start to damage people's ears, and people's ears get pam uh, pam damaged permanently. David came from counterculture sort of hippie culture, LSD culture, anti-war culture, civil rights, gay liberation, uh, uh, feminist movement. You don't want to harm people. You want to liberate people. So playing music at 100 dB was very important. Even that arguably is, is can be harmful if you spend too long at, uh, at 100 dB. Um, but... So there's, an, but your ears start to work in a different way instead of the music kind of basically assaulting you, attacking you, even injuring you. Um, you and, and therefore you kind of, you kind of eventually your ears might get damaged or your body becomes defensive. I mean, 120, a lot of people would play 140 dB, for example. Um, you know, that's part of the pleasure. And I understand that pleasure, by the way, and I've had it myself. But but it's a different experience when you play at a, certain, at a lower level and your ears actually have to, you listen differently. And eventually you get used to it and you start to enjoy it more. And it takes a little while. Um, 
Um, so this is part of sound, the sound system and how you want to play it. And it's not just about having fancy equipment, but actually just about tuning into the, mu the music and having and playing it in a certain way that enables people to listen and, and maybe even have a conversation at the right time. And it can sound like that's detract from the dance experience, but it adds to the social experience and adds to the energy on the dance floor because people can become comfortable with each other. So getting a nice stereo system together is really important. And it doesn't, and just, you know, some simple basic components uh, can go a long way. Um, what else would you do next? So uh, uh, then you invite, then you invite some friends. Um, to the party so you get that or you do a little card or whatever David never went on the internet he never did a flyer he just wrote personalised invitations um, one of the reasons I set up all our friends is I wanted us to I wanted to develop something that was more intimate than I felt was even the case with Lucky Cloud which was the London loft if you like um, and you know Lucky Cloud for various reasons we had ended up having a Facebook page and a website and this and the other and I wanted uh, something that had a less social media presence because I wanted the socialising to happen on the dance floor, mm. not in, as soon as you're on Facebook, you're on you're in corporate culture, and I wanted something that wasn't directly touched by corporate culture. Anyway, so you send out the invites. Then on the day, you prepare some food, you decorate the room, uh, make sure people. Well, what's the last? So that's a very long answer. Um, <laughs> what's the last thing you do when you prepare for a party? Ask someone to play records. Now, Real records, not digital, of course. Yeah, even that as well. <laughs> so music, let me just say music. And so that's interesting. Now, I'd say that most, a lot of contemporary DJ culture is organized around the figure of the DJ. Mm -hmm. That's the rationale. And, you know, people go, you know, somewhat tourist-like, you know, club hopping, DJ hopping, just to kind of, you know, hear, hear the legends, say they've been part of it, get out their phone, you know, take a selfie, take a video in the middle of the dance floor, put it up online. Yeah, I've been with this legendary figure. The DJs who get the biggest pay are the ones who've got the biggest Instagram followings. The ones who get the biggest Instagram followings are the ones who often, ha you know, put up the pictures about them looking cool and yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it's like cool. Right. It doesn't seem to... There's just somehow the cult and it's about, and the, and the DJ is, it's, you know, the, the initial interesting thing about this party culture is that the DJs were quite anonymous. It wasn't about them. They just loved the music and they could put music that people love to hear. And they could do this in an improvised way that connected the dance floor and them. Um, it was, you know, in musical terms, it was antiphony or call and response. Um, it was conversational. Um, but now it's the focus on the DJ is like, it's just like rock culture was at some point. It's just like performance focusing yeah. on these individuals when it was, it's really about a collective, but the focus on the DJ is the focus on the individual. And it's just a bit boring, really. And it detracts from the dance floor. Again, just another little anecdote I'll throw in is that, you know, especially I understood this best when I started to actually work with David on, on, on hosting parties. And the whole thing is you've even got this room. You've got your nice room. Okay, where the hell do you put the turntables and the speakers? How do you position them? And David's thing was you walk into the room and the first thing you see is the dance floor and the decorated room and maybe some of the speakers. And the last thing you see is the turntables and the booth the dj booth let's call it for sure that's the last thing you see so when you go in your impression is ah oh, i'm here for the party not ah oh, where's the dj front center in the middle the now. dj is the yeah. last 
thing that and there was once you know early on a reason well halfway through our about david because david stopped coming to london when he became a bit unwell um and there was one party where he had come to london maybe five years in and was sort of fallen sick and was unwell and had to stay in his hotel room and um colleen uh who was one of the co-founders with jeremy colleen murphy co-founder with uh, myself and jeremy gilbert um, she stepped in at the last minute and had already put put on records for David in the loft on a few occasions. Um, and so she stepped in at the last minute. And um, so the part that was all, you know, it all came together as a bit of a panic and we weren't really sure how it would go. And we offered people a refund if they were upset that it wasn't going to be David, blah, blah, blah. And um, a really good friend of mine anyway came along, you know, half, you know, to, few hours into that party the room was pretty full at that point and it was it was going really well and uh, this friend came over to me and said wow wow tim david he's playing so well tonight it's incredible and i was like well yeah except it's not david it's Colleen." It's and it was a perfect moment in a way it demonstrated the whole philosophy worked you know it wasn't about the david person, yeah. it wasn't about the dj hero it wasn't about the legend it was about the party and you couldn't really tell as long as the person stepping in knew the records respected the energy of the floor and and knew how the party could unfold if, if people were tuned into that uh, it would work it's not about an individual so you're asking where does things go wrong and it's you know one of the things that goes wrong is a bit too much focus on the dj i think and and so the other thing is that is david would set up all the speakers so the they would actually almost you know there would be you know the, the the turntables and booth would be one you know in one part of the room and then the speakers would be aligned kind of almost like a like in a circle or you know um well it's kind of rectangular like but anyway at the periphery of the room at the other end the main speakers would be at the other end of the so there'd be no music kind of coming from behind david uh, the music would be coming from in front of him, effectively. So if you're if you're going there to dance and to listen to the music, if you are facing David in those in those party situations, um, you it's effectively like going to a rock concert or a music concert or an orchestral concert and having your back to the stage. Effectively, that's oh. what you're doing. If you're facing David, and the speakers are configured in that way precisely to discourage people from facing David, because that is not the point of the party the point of the party is for people to dance with each other not to gawp and cheer the you know the, the selector the dj david uh, and that's what heightens the energy of the party because people are actually dancing with each other but i think most of all events are set up these days most spaces um festivals i don't really know much about festival culture but i don't I'm not sure I, I have some doubts about how it how it functions to be honest with you uh most things are about everything is directed towards the dj that stage that elevation but if everyone is facing the dj it means that you are dancing with someone's back the entire party because that's what happens if everyone is facing the same way you're just dancing with someone's back and I think this is why sometimes these spaces and events don't really work. Everyone is worshipping the DJ instead of dancing with each other. You know, the idea of the culture has kind of become a bit lost, but this is how it works commercially. You pump up the DJ, the DJ demands big fees. I mean, it's not quite as bad as football, where the people who pay £200,000 a week or whatever, uh, the, the top players even more. Um, it's not as bad as football, but, you know, there's a parallel there. 
you know, the, it's a there's a lot of money goes into the culture. People pay a lot of money for the tickets. The DJs demand a lot of money, and therefore the DJs are promoted an awful lot. But then it just all becomes about the DJ, the DJ, the DJ, rather than forming a, a party community. So the reaction against that is what has been happening with some, you know, and it's and it's spreading as the people clock into the legacy of the loft. And there are other parties as well that have done similar things that followed in in David's slipstream, if you like. Um, sometimes people have just done similar stuff, but it, just a bit later, but without even knowing about David. And David would, wouldn't, you know, the, the point is that what all David was doing was throwing a party in his front room. He wasn't the first person to do this. He himself loved rent parties, which date back to Harlem Renaissance, uh, when African-Americans, working-class African-Americans who couldn't afford to pay the rent, uh, started to have uh, parties in their homes and, you know, borrow a little sound, borrow a little turntable or something, put on a little bit of food. People make a do- would make a donation to go in and they'd have a little intimate party and those donations helped that person pay the rent. This was David's favourite model uh, party situation before he started his own party. This was his model, just an intimate setting where it's not commercial and people can gather and relax and enjoy themselves. Uh, And the point is this goes back through human history. You know, the dance uh, goes back to the beginning. You know, the dance, the rhythm and the dance goes back to the beginning of time. You know, OM is, you know, some the big, the universe begins with with Big Bang and sound. and, you know, David liked to say that, you know, point out that home, the two central uh, letters of home are OM, H-O-M-E, and OM is, is, the, is supposedly the first sound, the universal sound that can bring together different harmonics and bring everyone together. David was really interested in all of this on harmonics and certain... certain um, Certain frequencies that, because our bodies are basically carry carry our bodies was our bodies have a frequency level. David got I don't really fully grasp all of this, but um, you know there are certain, there's one frequency that our body doesn't properly receive because it's it's set at that level, the mixture of flesh and bone and water and bacteria and what have you. Um, so there's the partly partly these parties are out trying to align frequencies. Um, and we don't think about the culture in that way generally now. But um, if you think about it, but if you think about, you know, physics and spirituality and sociality, you come at the party from a different angle to the DJ hero who you want to scream at and take a photo of. Indeed, we don't, you know, the parties that I organised and this became a thing at the loft, you know, it's like no camera, no phones. Mm. You know, because as soon as you're with the phone, you leave, you are no longer dancing with the people around you. Uh, and actually you're stopping the other people dancing around you from really interacting with each other because you are standing still and you've got a lighted object in your hand and you're, you know, it's, and anyone, whenever I see anyone with a phone, it kind of kills the moment for me uh, because I tend to run these these things. I can politely go over and say, do mm-hmm. you mind, is it okay if you do that by the side of the floor? I've had a few people get upset with me over the years, but um, it's really like, okay, I'm really sorry if your dad is is unwell. Really, I, you know, I'm sorry, but this, it would be nicer for it. Would just be, it would be better for you, maybe, even if you don't try and talk to your dad yeah, in the middle. Dance. Exactly. This is, where, this is where we're people are dancing. This is where we're dancing, um, and you know, then come back. But if someone's taking a photo or selfies, and everyone, it just this becomes it completely disrupts the flow of the floor. 
but it's I'm not criticizing anyone or trying to. It's just like people, you know, people have got people think of the phones as, you know, it's their right. People think of it as a human right now to use their phones whenever they want, text whenever they want, go online whenever they want. So but parties work so much better when there are no phones. But we're in a culture where it's like phones are ubiquitous. So it's interesting. The challenges to the culture are interesting. But then there's a bunch of places where which understand that. If you don't have phones, there's a better chance that, you know, people are going to connect with the people around them and you'll get a good energy going rather than people on their phones connecting with people outside, live streaming or whatever. And uh, just like it just detracts. Um, so I think it's, a, you know, it's complicated out there. There are places that where it's... Um, Lots of people go to these with their phones and these concerts and the heroes and they're having a that's 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 they're a good idea of a good time and I'm not, I don't want to, you know I'm not it's not like I'm questioning people having a good time I'm just sort of saying what you know what else can happen and and somehow these these other this this other pathway offers other other things that some people appreciate more. Yeah, and it, well, the just the ethos of the loft parties and the way. While describing the attention to detail that he had in terms of even the DBs being at a certain mm. level so that they mm. wouldn't harm people's hearing, you get the mm. sense that there is this very shared experience between the DJ, the party creator, and the attendees. And that also translates into the energy and the music of the party. And Absolutely. I think it's also nice to mention, because it's the 50th anniversary this year, it was voted as the most influential dance party in history. So I think this ethos is something that people still strongly desire to connect with. But mm. we're living in an era where I would say social media perpetuates the celebrity DJ culture mm. Mm. and this front center setup, as you described. And I'm just wondering now that we're at this really interesting pivoting point with coronavirus, where mm. a lot of clubs are going under, a lot of DJs are having to reconsider, I would say, their... Mm. Um, income streams and their cool. career choice. Yeah. Do you think that this is a transitioning point in terms of how parties and club culture will be organized in the future or that will fall back into these same kind of patterns? Um, it's, it's hard to know, isn't it? Because we do, we're not sure when it's going to be safe. You know, there's been all sorts of um, attempts by people to continue to have parties safely or just with, without safety being the primary concern, you know, uh, rave culture made a bit of a comeback during the summer. Clearly, um, clubs haven't really managed to do that. There's, you know, there's some have tried to reinvent themselves as more like chill out lounges with social distancing. And I can, everyone needs to survive in, in the best way they can. Um, obviously, there's been lots of online DJing and webcams being pointed and and all the rest of it. I, I haven't found myself drawn to any of that. It just doesn't interest me. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's, again, not to be critical of those who are doing it or those who are into it. But for me, it's about being in real time and space. Um, and if I can't do that, I'd almost rather not do it. Um, I'm certainly not drawing parallels between myself and David, but I was quite, it was one, in one of the interviews I did with him, again, I was quite interested when he said that if he couldn't do the parties in the way he wanted to do them, it, he wouldn't have become a DJ because he never thought of himself as a DJ. Uh, he said he would have just kind of gone to work on a wine farm in the mountains or some <laughs> organic wine farm in the mountains. You know, he wanted organic community, basically. Whether we, you know, there was certainly some point where, you know, throughout this whole pandemic, there's been points where we hope that this could be a turning point for the world to become a better place for us to 
do less air travel, buy less crap, uh, value community, um, value health above, you know, material gain, etc. It's turning out to be a very incredibly reactionary pandemic. You know, poor people are getting poorer. Um, social, you know, social networks are being destroyed. Um, the whole, whole cultural sectors are being decimated. Um, you know, the environmental gains were very real at the beginning, but they're fast disappearing. Um, you know, car traffic is greater now than it was at the start of the, you know, the end, just in the bit pre, just pre the pandemic. So it's hard to be optimistic right now. Um, certainly, I've experienced a lot of people who, who've, who've been, but maybe I would, who've been saying just how much they miss the parties. It's made us realise what we take for granted, the importance of what we take for granted. The ability to socialise, you know, the very simple ability to socialise with friends and even family in real time and space. So that kind of um, human bit is being appreciated. Uh, but, there, you know, there's obviously this massive tech victory is going on right now. Everything's happening online. More and more time is being spent online. And it's like, it's not, I'm not wishing on the internet away at all, but, you know, if we're listening to music or wanting to dance or wanting to do a whole load of things, it's, it happens better offline sometimes. And I do think there's a balance to be struck. So I'm not really feeling positive right now about there being some sort of breakthrough. But certainly there's maybe some sense of our, the importance of the culture has, has been sort of felt very strongly because along with, to a certain extent, theatres, uh, the hardest hit area of culture has been dance, uh, party culture, because it does bring people coming so close together and physical contact and, you know, humid air and, you know, airborne viruses can obviously flourish in these kind of conditions. Um I think the, the I you know I think I don't think this can I don't I'm I'm no expert but I my my guess is that at some point there will be a vaccine and the vaccine will eventually be um, be taken by you know the population and it might be that we need to get vaccinated every year but I don't think it's the complete end of this culture um, I think it will it will come back. Um, but it's, it's, you know, there's also going to be quite a lot of infrastructure might get lost. Um, you know, I know people run sound companies, people, you know, some, I'm sure there's the case with some, you know, some club spaces, venues, even community centres, etc. Places are going to get theatrical, you know, where the, all our friends is held in a community centre slash theatrical space. We held a fundraiser from it. It's actually got some government support, but there's it, hopefully it will survive. But there's all sorts of venues that won't survive, uh, and you can't straightforwardly replace this stuff. Uh, you know, it's years and years of you know effort and love can go into the cultivation of these spaces and these networks, and not all of them are going to survive. Um, the question of what might come through as a result. Um, remains anyone's guess. I mean, if there's a bit less focus on the international travel um, and there's more of an attempt for people to sort of be more modest in what they're hoping to get out of the culture, maybe that will be something that positive that comes out of it. I, I was asked to write a piece by The Guardian about, you know, partying during the pandemic. Uh, maybe it was a couple of months ago now. And, um, you know, one of the responses, because if we can't, if the, if we can't really just go out in straightforward ways and there's all these restrictions, well, um, and this was before the recent 
you know, the second wave really kicked in. It was the, the suggestion was maybe kind of people can sort of indeed do put more small gatherings, house parties, observe social distancing, keep things nice and ventilated, do it safely. I mean, we're at the point now where maybe none of this is safe. Um, and, you know, we just need another proper lockdown. I know things are going pretty badly in the Netherlands right now as well. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Probably even worse than London, extraordinarily, or the UK. Um, although I'm not trying to be competitive here by certainly, <laughs> I certainly don't like the UK government, uh, but surprised at how bad things are going in, in the Netherlands and even and also France. But anyway, the um, yeah, we'll see. There was, there was a sense like, well, all this stuff gets knocked out. Maybe it's kind of back to basics, right? DIY, just kind of um, keep things simple. Um, it's a little phrase that gets used a lot in the yoga class I do. You don't have to do all these elaborate postures and asanas. And, and it, the, you know, the, there's a beauty in the simplicity and we can often get the most pleasure from that. So it's possible that when, when things settle, there'll be, there'll be a renewed, a renewed move towards more intimate gatherings and more modest gatherings and less about DJs jetting all over the world. Um, you know, there's always this thing about where where do we find happiness, and we can walk across the world searching for happiness. But eventually, it's very cheesy to talk like this. I appreciate that. So apologies. I love you, I love listening to it. <laughs> you find happiness when you stop searching for it. You basically, you know, it's not somewhere out there. It's about just finding, you know, some sort of happiness with what you've got, wherever you are at that point, living in the moment. Um, and it's just so, yeah, it's like you may closing down the computer screens a little bit, turning off the phones. You know, this is, I think there's a, there was a, there was, it's, although there was a lot of fear early into the pandemic and I was, you know, had my concerns for sure. The, the increased time a lot of people were spending with, with their families, uh, not going commuting so much, uh, going for walks in nature, which if it was, a, if it were, you had parks or whatever on your doorstep, and the lack of, there was no air trap, there was no air, there was no, no planes in the sky, there were no cars on the street. It happened to be beautiful weather in London for the first month of the pandemic. And although it was a scary, challenging time uh, in many ways, and certainly more so for many other people than myself, there was something about it which offered something kind of incredibly moving, actually, and, and indeed gorgeous, clean air. Uh, nature bounced back at an incredible velocity during that first couple of months of the pandemic. And it was very heartening to see that that, that could happen. Um, we've lost some of that now, unfortunately, of course. And um, but you have to sort of yeah. The, but this idea of you know we don't have to kind of we don't have to be flying across the world or across the country or you know the weekends are all this weekends away, all this kind of people flying everywhere just to yeah. have a kind of go to a bar in a different city or something. <laughs> I mean, I think it makes me feel this the, the cult. I, I just you know just got to do something about this. This culture has to change, really. I don't know if it's, you know, so maybe there, maybe there will be a little shift along those maybe, lines. Maybe, yeah, to a gradual degree. I also have fingers crossed. Yeah. But it's um, it's hard because there's, you know, there's 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 a lot of competing voices now out out there, really. You know, there's and there's, especially within, you know, DJing and music, it's, it's, it's you know, it's not, it's not, it's not really straightforward. Um how to get through it. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, you know, so I think it's just staying with the, you know, the only thing we can all do is sort of stay with the present and just find ways of, of, um, 
max you know maximizing what we can get out of any situation so um so that includes now obviously it's not just like saying oh we have to wait and you know things will restart um it's just working out the but what, what's available to you at any particular time and trying to see what you can do with that um you know whether it's how we listen to music what we're listening to and um yeah. You know, it's a different it's been it's been interesting to have a, a time when there's 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 not about organizing weekly parties. So my ears have changed, what I listen to has shifted, how I'm listening, I'm getting through, you know, I've had time to sort of do things that I wouldn't normally have time to do. I'm buying a I'm buying way less music. I'm clearing out I'm, because I've lost half my job to the pandemic. My job has been cut in half, so that was a bit unfortunate. So sort of selling music on Discogs for the first time rather than buying constantly. Mm. And there's something – so I'm not saying, oh, aren't I great at all, but it's been it's been good to spend more time listening to the records that I have rather than always trying to buy more and more and more. Yeah. Uh, it's been it's been important sort of ethical lesson for me that you don't have to always be indeed you know this is my that's my version of flying to europe for you know go out to a bar one night and then flying back which is a bit wasteful my own wastefulness is probably buying music without really always listening to it properly and just like accumulating too much and this frantic you know, drive for music that would get exciting. And actually the slowing, the for, the enforced slowing down and the fact that I now have half the money that I am earning, I'm now earning half the money now than I did at the beginning of the pandemic due to cuts to my job, is is there's something healthy about it actually. Um, so, you know, I guess it's just trying to respond and make the most of whatever's in front of us. Uh, it's been fun. We've done a few all our friends broadcasts. Actually, um, I didn't want to be on. I didn't want us to be on the on Facebook, or I didn't want us to be streaming because if you're streaming uh, with with visuals, it's asking people to look at the visuals. And for me, I didn't want a bunch of people. If we're doing an all our friends broadcast, just like looking at basically three guys putting on records, because <laughs> um, it's boring. Um, and again, it's not about the guys putting on the records that is about a feeling and so we would have a, a mini 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 minuscule house party whilst these broadcasts would happen to try and have a, an all actually generate some feeling in that room and then we broadcast it live and we're hoping that people who tuned in would feel that feeling and they would do whatever they're doing in their places of listening whether it's gathering with a few people or just having a dance by themselves so you know it's not that it's not as powerful as being able to have a party, but it's it's also just trying to respond to the situation in a way that seems to be continuous, you know, to have a continuity of what we want to do and how we want to do it. Um, yeah, I think that's all you can do at this point, be, at least yeah. for the foreseeable future. Um, we're actually quite tight on time now, which is a shame because <laughs> there's so yeah. much to discuss Paradise Garage, right, Larry LeVan. Give you super quick answers, like that we can have a game. <laughs> well, some of them, like talking about Larry, I don't think that we could get into a super quick. Uh, yes, game. I can. Try me. I'll be quick. Okay. Well, Larry, Larry was initiated. Larry LeVan with the Paradise Garage, which is in a way the best known New York City party of all time. But, you know, arguably now I'm arguing that the loft was more important, if you like. But Larry LeVan danced at the loft, was inspired by David Mancuso, uh, ended up also being inspired by another person inspired by David called Nicky Siano, who ran another private party inspired by the loft called The Gallery. 
David was mysterious. Nikki Siano was extrovert. Larry took half of David, took half of Nikki, and kind of combined them in one new DJ, if you like. DJ star called Larry Levan. And he was the most inventive and prolific remixer of his generation uh, in the late 70s and early 1980s, and in many ways reinvented dance music, party music several times over. Uh, the names couldn't keep up with him. So he was a very, and the Paradise Garage opened as a, as a, and as a um, what's a, what's the word a you know beefed up uh, supersized version of the loft. So try to keep the values of the loft, but do it instead of doing it for five hundred people or a thousand people to do it for three thousand people or four thousand people. And it was in a location in a parking garage. And Larry Levan was a DJ there for ten years, and he became an incredibly influential figure through his DJing, through his taste through the way that he was remixing his own music and just like breaking boundaries in an incredible way. And every every band and every DJ, uh, every uh, record label promoter wanted Larry to play their records. So he was, he kind of just had the world at his fingertips really. Um, but then the garage was closed through pressures from the local neighborhood association. It was kind of gentr early, early versions of gentrification. Larry Levan started taking heroin in 1984, so that didn't help him when it came to kind of arriving at the, at the garage on time and stuff. So he, you know, went through struggles and uh, ended up dying uh, heart problems in 1992. But he was very deeply, he was intimately collected with David uh, Mancuso, and and you know, alongside David is the you know the most influential figure in this party's history. I love. There's a quote from your book, Love and Death. A guy named Mark Riley said that Larry was the Jimi Hendrix with turntables and yeah. a mixer. I think that's <laughs> just a brilliant analogy. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, the quote goes on, you know, sometimes he was absolutely awful. Yeah. <laughs> but when he was good, he, he was incredible, you know. And the, uh, I mean, I mean, David was, Mancuso was very consistent. He was quite disciplined. Um, you know, you just each party you kind of you would get uh, you pretty much knew what you're going to get. Larry was more uh, mercurial, unpredictable, uh, more you know moodier really, and, uh, and he expressed this in his music as well. So um, yeah, but it's very you know very powerful. You know, ultimately, I'd say that you know the the garage was probably ultimately more intense than the loft in a way. Uh, because it was like 3,000 people and a bigger sound system and bigger DBs and massive bass. And Larry was on a raised raised kind of DJ booth and he towered, whereas David ended up being on, always wanted to be on the same floor, or almost always ended up saying that I want the, the booth to be on the same level, the ground, the same level as the dancers. Um, so that everything at the garage was like bigger and more. And so the, the, the peaks were also more intense. Um, but, you know, the loft was more sustainable. Um, it is, and it, it, it preceded the garage, and it long outlived the garage. Um, it was more community based. It was uh, you could keep listening at the DB for longer. Um, it was less about extremes. Uh, it was greater intimacy uh, and greater. And I would say, you know, from a musical point of view, um, definitely to my mind, and from what I've heard, everything I've heard at the garage, although Larry was heavily inspired by David, David's music. When it was much broader, it went. It just this the panorama, the, the sonic soundscape was just much, much more expansive. And this is because it was in David's home. You know, really, at the end of a party on Sunday afternoon at three o'clock, David might well put on, you know, the nut the nutcracker or something. <laughs> 
and his cat would be running around getting, you know, and everyone would be stroking the cat. You just, it's just, if you're in your home, you basically have more freedom yeah. uh, than if you're in a club. And the, the garage, although it wanted to be, you know, it's just create everything that the loft had, it was, it was bigger, it was located in the parking garage, um, and it didn't quite have that intimacy and quite have that freedom. You know, when you've got 3,000 people, you've got, to, you've got to keep the dance, the dance floor has to keep going in a way that is different. Um, if there's even 500 people, it's a different environment. And, you know, and and David's parties would, you know, they would start at midnight and they would carry on till 12, 1, 2, 3, at one point even longer. And when the garage would close, which was usually at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, so it was more, more curtailed. It's still a long party, but it was more curtailed than the loft. At the end of a party at the garage, you know, usually Larry, along with people like Francois Kavorki and other people who are now sort of legendary, they would go to the loft. That would be their way of chilling out at the end of the night or con continuing the party. The loft oh, was like this magnet. <laughs> it was always open longer than anywhere else because um, it was a home. And the party, you know, even if David wants to go for a little sleep, he'd let someone else take over the turntables. Yeah. Uh, Such yeah. a special thing to just visualize and imagine. And um, who knows, maybe, maybe after coronavirus, we'll see more of these, the detail-oriented and very thoughtful approach to party planning and, and sharing mm. in the experience, I would say. I keep on, people keep on getting in touch with me saying, you know, different things in different ways that they've been to Lucky Cloud, they've been to The Loft, they've been to all our friends, whatever it might, they've read one of the books, they've read about this culture and they've, and they've done something themselves that's inspired by it. And, I'm, you know, every other day, it seems, or at least once a week, I'll get an email from a party organiser saying, this is what I'm doing. And I'm like, oh, wow, I want to hear more about this. It sounds great. And, you know, I really hope sometime I've, I'm, I might be, if I'm ever passing by, I'd love to come along. And if you're a, it's, it's going on everywhere and it might be going on in Amsterdam. I don't know. But if it's not, I'd sort of say, just do it yourself. Start kind of. it up. <laughs> really, why not? And, it, and it's just about getting together. A group. Friends in Barcelona have recently started something. This was pre-pandemic, but it was a guy, an ex-student of mine, Alejandro, uh, who you know wanted, a, who was involved with Lucky Cloud, the, the London Loft, and then started his own sort of queer Spanish parties, effectively in London. And they're still, they were still running until the pandemic. Now he's in Barcelona, and he wanted to start a Loft-style party in Barcelona, and through, and it was like, okay, get some friends, see if you can like borrow some sound equipment find a nice little space maybe in a community center spread the word you know word of mouth you know friends of friends come along and they held up i think it definitely one and maybe it was even a few parties before the pandemic and apparently they were fantastic and this stuff is just like you know just do it you know yeah. it's, you know this it's all entirely possible it just needs and it's the the core that like the thing that lies at the heart of it is community and friendship group as David said, the first thing you do is a group of friends who want to put on a party. So just find some people who think like you think. And <laughs> and, uh, I'd say go for it because uh, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to do it. You know, even if it's in someone's front room and even if it takes place on a Saturday from four o'clock until 11 o'clock because you don't want to disturb the neighbours too late, there's always a way. There's always a, a way of doing it. Um, and, yeah, and people will enjoy it and will want to do it again. Yeah, well, I have I have the decks, I have the mixer, I have the wood floors, <laughs> the wood floors. So I think uh, you know we'll see. This really yes, does. Buy some balloons. Buy some I balloons. just need the balloons. 
luckily have the friends as well. <laughs> the I first check. <laughs> well, this was really lovely, Tim. Like I could talk for hours with you. Unfortunately, we just have someone else coming in, and no I mean, it's so interesting to dive down. And truly, I got goosebumps and with a lot of what you were saying. Oh, and um, oh. I think it's best to go out with playing Go Bang. Oh, and maybe if you want to very briefly touch upon Arthur Russell Dinosaur, I'll just very briefly, and then very we'll close. Briefly. We'll close with that track. Arthur Russell was a beautiful musician who was born in Iowa and ran away from home at a young age and relocated to San Francisco and through San Francisco, living on a Buddhist commune, met Allen Ginsberg, the countercultural poet, and ended up in New York uh, through Ginsberg's persuasion. And in New York, Arthur followed his ears. Uh, he was a composer, but he was very interested in songwriting. He played the cello, but played a bunch of other instruments as well. And in following his ears, he got involved with the new wave punk scene, but then even more than that, got involved with the party scene around the gallery and the loft in the Paradise Garage, got involved with the nascent hip-hop scene. He was playing dub music, uh, voice cello music, folk music, and always looking for the way that these sounds and the scenes that, that had formed in New York City around these sounds could meet each other, could could play, you know, could interact with one another so that the the boundaries would dissolve. And this is what you know, Arthur's music sounded like, really. It was like it was beautiful, it was sensitive, uh, but it was dynamic, it was, you know, unpredictable. Um, it was had a, you know, it always had a, it was honest, um, very explorative, and it was always very collaborative. Uh, and Arthur ended up kind of going to the loft, getting him, you know, becoming some, somewhat friendly with David. He wanted to play his music at the loft, listen out of hours when there wasn't a party because David had the finest sound system in New York City for listening to music on. And uh, Go Bang was uh, was one of Arthur Russell's kind of, we sometimes call it mutant disco records, mm -hmm. where he was taking the principles of disco, but just trying to reinvent it because by the late 1970s, disco had become somewhat formulaic and predictable and was in need of reinvention. And Arthur was part of the group of musicians who reinvented it and with go bang there's amateur percussionists from the loft dance floor appear on there playing percussion and chanting and singing uh, there's new wave guitarists there are orchestral uh, composers musicians who play trombones sing operatic sing do operatic singing uh, play other instruments and then there's the ingram brothers who form the rhythm section the kind of disco funk uh, outfit of brothers uh, from philadelphia um, who formed the kind of dynamic you know drive the groove for the for the track and it's you know in a way what the things i was saying about house music earlier on a lot of that stuff is anticipated in this track and surpassed in this track when i heard go bang which was recorded in 19 the remix came out in 1982 of france remix it was like the most far out far-reaching music i'd ever heard it was you know it seemed quite a bit more radical than say a lot of the house music that I heard, which is not to knock house music it's just to say that wow these musicians um, jamming together uh, with the arthur russell kind of you know coordinating the efforts and really encouraging people to improvise and express themselves after which he pieced it all together using two 24 track tape recorders so it's my personal favorite record and the second book i wrote was uh, arthur russell biography but in a sense again it's not about the individual it's like you know with arthur it wasn't just all about arthur it was always about the collaboration with david it wasn't about david it was about the party so yeah so arthur just i was I'm not that interested in biography, but I am interested in scenes. And Arthur was just such a selfless, 
musician devoted to the sound and the way he moved about these different scenes in New York City was just a way of another way of telling the story of this incredible period in that city's history through the life of one person because this person was so committed to collaboration musical collaboration and exploration um so yeah that was the second book i wrote and it was i, I feel very deeply attached to you know um arthur russell as a musician and a kind of you know musical um communal spiritual collaborator figure uh you know um so yeah i was very happy to have a, you know just to stumble into that I, the idea of writing it was as soon as I started writing Love Saves the Day, one of David Mancuso's best mates and another DJing pioneer called Steve DeQuisto, he had collaborated with Arthur Russell. And he's like, You've got to write a book about Arthur Russell. And I was like, Hang on a second, man. <laughs> just starting one about, you know, the 1970s and DJ culture. But that became the second book. And it's, you know, it's, um, yes, yeah, this, you know, he's a very special musician and I don't grow tired of listening to his music. And the Go Bang, by the way, this is this is all about like creating a record that just captures the energy and the explosive kind of orga semi-orgasmic, if you like, peak that you can one can experience on the dance floor. That's the Go Bang, and the, it has the lyrics: "I want to see all all my friends at once go bang." This is like the eternally most beautiful line that captures dance music ultra. I want to see all my friends at once go bang. This is what we can't do in COVID. We can't see all our friends at once. This is what we get on the in dance party culture. We feel like we're with all our friends. When we go bang, we let go, we everything explodes. It's you know, it's euphoric. Um, and this record kind of captures that, I think, really, really beautifully. So all my all our friends at this party I started two years ago with a couple of other people, it's obviously a play on that 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 line oh, or instead of I want to see all my friends at once it's all our friends because it just kind of collectivizes it um, and there were three of us um, starting the party effect before starting the party in effect so um, so there's a reference and it's all our friends again it's the name which is inspired by Arthur it's like this is what we're really it's really about sociality it's about being together as friends that's what that's what we're doing here it's not about let's you know the the dj here or the or the even celebrating the sound system it's like it's about coming together of, of, of friends and and everything else follows that it's not it doesn't end with that but it begins with that so yeah so that's my attempt at a brief answer here i think well let's hope that we get those transcendental all my friends go bang moments in the near future yeah likewise and <laughs> until then just thank you again I find yeah, it that it's been, really, it's been really lovely. Yeah, talking. I'm going to play question. the track out. I think if there was a common thread throughout this, it's really the importance of community and love for hmm. each other. So I hope that carries through through music, through, music, through dance. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you again. Thank you, Ali. I wanna see all my friends at once I need an arm